broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Uh, today, I am going to introduce my friend Carlin. And tomorrow, I will introduce my friend Jordan. Stay tuned. Wait, it's tomorrow already? <laughs> yeah, no. We just wanted to throw you for a loop. Maybe. It's still Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Or maybe I just forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, that <laughs> that is exactly what happened. Yeah. But all good. We we sally forth. We, we, we will continue on with like nothing ever happened. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. What? Don't tell. There are people listening? So what's what's our film for this episode? Oh, the film of this episode is actually a choice of yours. Yeah. And I... um. I think this is the first time that we've reviewed uh, the director's cut of a movie. Yeah, I think it is. And and that movie is a 1990 film that was a fairly large financial disaster, if I understand (laughs) it correctly. Nightbreed. Yes, Nightbreed. And here's the thing. First of all, I thought there's been enough episodes that it was safe for me to pick another horror film. After we did our, our month of horror. Right, we did our October horror blowout. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, let's stay off of horror for a little bit, then we'll go back. And I felt like now's now we're okay. So now we're fine. You'll you'll get some horror films here and there from me. Um, then when I chose Nightbreed, I just chose it because I was like, I, I was like, I want to do a horror, and this has been sitting in my queue. Yeah. And I've been really wanting to see it because I'd never seen it before, and I had heard you know decent things about Nightbreed, and. I picked it, and I texted it to Jordan, and then I realized, like, days later, I was like, oh, this is a Clive Barker film, and we just did Hellraiser in October, yeah. which was another Clive Barker film, and I was like, should I change that? And Jordan was like, nope. He's like, I mean, it's your pick. Like, yeah, you can do it. Whatever. You pick what you want to watch. Though. Yeah, so... I've definitely picked movies I've wanted to watch, and then you've hated them, so... <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Only God forgives. Yep, that yeah. one. But God, God hopefully will forgive me on that one. <laughs> it's a bad one. But anyway, so like you mentioned, this is a, uh, a Clive Barker movie. And of course, Clive Barker is, not only is he a film director, but he's also a screenwriter and a, a novelist as well. Yep. Um, Does uh, I believe he's involved with um, some comics as well. I think he's, well, I know that, that a lot of his work has been adapted for comics. Yes. Um, so he's definitely at least had some kind of financial involvement with that. Yeah. As in taking money. But he's also such an icon within the horror mm-hmm. community because of the uh, the quality of his writings mm-hmm. as well as how dark and um, new they are. A lot of new ideas he brings to the table. And, uh, and this film definitely has a different take than I think that the, um, the, the studio wanted it to go. And a different take than I'm sure the audience expected. Well, I heard that the, the advertising for this film was pretty darn horrible. Yeah, and we'll talk about that after we yeah, yeah. get everything else. So, out of, of course, uh, if you want to find out more about Clive Barker, uh, this is um, we've been kind of doing a, a string of these movies that have had the similar directors mm-hmm. or, or directors that we've talked about before. So, if you want to go back and hear our take on another Clive Barker movie, go back and listen to our review of Hellraiser, and uh, you'll find out pretty much um, more about his his filmography and his. Uh, writing style and everything like that. For the cast of this movie, um, we had... Oh, let me go ahead and give you the Netflix summary oh, yeah. first. So, believing that he's a serial killer, 
A troubled young man is drawn to an old cemetery where a variety of monsters are hiding from humanity. Place called Midian. 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 Which is kind of a interesting word. It's like fun to say fast. Oh yeah. Uh, interesting thing about this, for just to to get it on a timeline, uh, this film was done by Clive Barker right after he did Hellraiser and before he did Lord of Illusions. Right. So. From what I understand, he like sat down and he wrote the um, novella that this was based off of and really, really liked it. So he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to make a movie out of this. Yep. And one of, the, one of the challenges that came up when he had to then direct it and make it a movie is that a lot of the characters that were going to need to appear in the film yeah. were only described in like a few sentences or a paragraph in the book. So he had to really think further about what they should look look like. He had to, quote-unquote, flesh them out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, another thing that I thought was interesting about the movie was it, it did have some, like, the horror aspects that you would think of. Like, really, when they released it, they the film was billed as a slasher film because there yes. is a character in it who is a serial killer. It's not the character who thinks he's a serial killer. It's another character. Um but in addition to that, it, it combined uh, aspects of fantasy and also some really interesting, I thought, like psychological images about what it means to be like a, a person who's um, an other in a society. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a whole lot of that. Um, but who was in this film? Well, the, worth noting. Worth noting um, was uh, Craig Sheffer. He was the... I guess you could say star of uh, Nightbreed. And he was playing Aaron Boone. And then later on, Aaron Boone's character's name was changed to Cabal. Yes. So, uh, Craig Sheffer, he's had uh, some other films. It seems like he's stuck mostly in the, the horror, um, low-budget area in terms of his filmography. Uh, he was in The Mark, uh, and then Road Killers, and also Hijacked. Nice. And then... Um, uh, as the um, leading lady and love interest in this film, we had Anne Bobby playing Lori Winston, um, and she she had a a, a singing a musical number in this, um, a little bit better than High School Musical, but <laughs> or High School Musical two either either one of those, um, and she's been in uh, films like Born on the Fourth of July, which was a mm. Tom Cruise yeah. film in the mid nineties. And then she was also in a, a 1998 film called uh, Happiness. The work that I recognize her from, though, is the Bioshock franchise. Oh, okay. she pl- she's one of the voice actresses in Bioshock. Say, um, it's a good, very like goth style, um, yeah. goth steampunkish uh, video game series. Uh, yeah, uh, basically a, a deconstruction of Ayn Rand's. Yeah philosophy on life in a lot of ways um and the person that you've been waiting to talk about do it well there's two people yeah well the first one the the one that i have written down is david cronenberg david cronenberg yes the writer director david cronenberg yes also he he actually has over 20 acting credits to his name as well he's done a lot of tv work um and the thing is he's a very distinctive looking guy so I can imagine that he gets called a lot for for character actor work, um, but he of course also does a lot of 
directing and appears in his own films from time to time, such as The Fly, where he actually played an obstetrician. Um, but he's also done films like Dead Ringers, uh, Jason X, and The Grace of God. I've never seen Cronenberg in a significant role before, um, and this was the first one. Yeah. So it was really interesting. I've seen plenty of his films. Right. Uh, in fact, when I did my episode of the 31 films I watch, horror films I watched in October, uh, one of them was Shiver, um, or Shivers by um, Cronenberg. So I'm constantly watching Cronenberg. I like what he does. And if you remember, the very first film that we did was his son, Brandon Cronenberg, the film Antiviral. And that, that film was, sticks in my mind as one of the better films that we've watched overall. Yeah, so it was a good way to kick it off. Yeah, it was. It was. You're welcome. Yes, <laughs> yes, you're... you're you were uh, good. Make it made a good selection on that one. I did. I did. Um, so another person. Oh, that that was in this film that everybody knows. I like if you listen to the episode where we talked about Hellraiser. Uh, Doug Bradley shows up again in it, and he, he played Dirk Lylesberg, who was kind of like the head of everyone living in Midian. Yeah. Uh, kind of like a priest, if you will. He was the one with the extra eyes on his face, correct? Yeah. yeah. Which. I'm going to be honest, I couldn't tell that that's what that was until, until the they, very end. I thought it would look, it looked a lot like something like gills. Yeah, yeah, it really did, like just slits or gills or and something. There and was, was like, like blood coming out of them. And yeah, and that's why I was like, like what is it, what is it? But I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I didn't notice until toward the end when he was about to die. Yeah, I think. well, I think that's what they they were trying to do was like keep that a secret and then the eyes all open right. when he was wounded. Which was okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Doug Bradley was in there, which I was like, oh man, Doug Bradley, which is cool because obviously he worked with Clive Barker for Hellraiser, so then he was like, oh, you want to, you want to roll in my next flick? I have another project I might need to work with you on. Now, did you write down any, uh, like, information about the budget or anything like that? I did. Actually, the budget was 11 million. Which was a step up from Hellraiser. Yes, it was. Um, and it ended up bringing in 8.9 million. So not like a massive, massive failure, but right. anytime you don't make your money back, it's considered. A it's failure. not good. It's right. considered a flop. Well, so. and I, I think this movie actually has received something of a cult status. So I'm sure it it's made has. the money back yeah. in terms of DVD sales and um, like special releases and stuff like that, um, television showings and everything that cinema uses to make money back. So there basically there were issues with the film. Yeah. Uh, Clive Barker directed what he envisioned of the film, and then the studio decided that they wanted something different. From they what, wanted it to be a slasher. Yeah, they wanted it to be a slasher movie, and from what I understand, he wanted it to be a really groundbreaking movie that worked on a bunch of different levels. Yes. Essentially, he wanted it to be the Star Wars of horror. And you can see where he was trying to do something really new and interesting. Yeah. But the studio got in the way. Yeah. Now, there were three different versions of this film. The original theatrical release, this director's cut, which Mm -hmm. had extra stuff added. And then the Cabal cut, which was the most recent one that came out, which was Clive Barker um, restoring everything that he wanted in it. So that's closer to his vision. I wish the Cabal cut was available on Netflix. Um but after seeing this director's cut, I, I really want to see the Cabal cut. I would like to see what they added in and see if it helped make the storyline a little bit more. I have a feeling it probably did because, just to give you an idea of what happened, not only did Barker 
say that they cut a lot and and that was an issue, which they did cut a lot. They cut uh, originally it was a two and a half hour film, and they cut it down to like they cut it down almost to, to ninety minutes, right? Like um, hundred and two minutes. Hundred and two. So, well, first they cut it down to two hours from the two and a half to two hours, and then they were like, yeah, not enough. So they cut it down to 102. So altogether, they cut 48 minutes out of the film. Now, you think, in comparison to it being, you know, it was two and a half hours and it's cut 48 minutes, you would, at first, and I thought this way, at first just be like, oh, 48 minutes. In comparison, that's not that huge. That's half of a movie. That's huge. 48 minutes is massive. When you think about the type of content that could be in that 48 minutes, it's kind of like, oh, man. It's like like two or three plot threads were cut from the movie completely. Yeah, potentially. And I think, like... For example, there was this guy. There was a pre, like a Catholic priest, who showed up at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. and it just wasn't clear where that guy came from at all. Which there may have been more. Of him there, of yeah, him. and I'm yeah. thinking that there probably was more of his character. Right. In it. So it really would have been interesting to see. Um, you know, it will be because I'll try and get the cabal cut at some point. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where he was really trying to take it. But it's interesting to me because this was this cut was like two hours. Yeah. So there's still like a half hour missing somewhere. Right. Um, but I felt like it was too long in certain areas because like the fight scene at the end, they did way too much with that fight scene. I think they should have cut at least a solid five minutes out of that fight scene yeah. because it was just it just dragged on too long. They didn't need it. So I think for the director's cut, it was kind of a situation where... It's like, oh, well, here's the director's cut, but they didn't make the smartest choices right. in putting extra footage in. Yeah, and, you know, it. honestly, for me, it, it the, um, I I don't mind horror movies that are done well. Like, we both have talked very highly of, like, antiviral, mm-hmm. and we've also talked highly of reanimators and, um, and also Let the Right One In. Those are all horror movies that we were both very much on board with and thought yeah. they did a fantastic job with. This one, I felt like the pacing was all over the place, like, and that may be a product that, of the editing. Yeah, yeah, and we I think it know. is. I think it is. Um, but also, I noticed that was an issue with with Hellraiser as well. Yeah, there were some that's pacing true. issues. So you know, maybe it, it's an issue with this being his second release. Uh, Barker is still trying to find his footing in terms of his directing. Yeah, ability. and it could really be just it, it's hard to go from writing novels to screenplays yeah. uh, and have it the, and have that pacing translate properly. Typically typically a novel it, the the estimated time length of that they try and shoot for is about a hundred thousand words, which translates yeah. about to three hundred and fifty to four hundred and twenty pages long. Uh, typical script for a movie, ninety ninety pages to hundred and twenty pages. Wow. And each page of a movie script is only supposed to be one minute worth of film, you know. So that's a very different kind of writing than writing an entire novel, where or novella. Novellas are typically between thirty and fifty uh, thousand words. So hmm. you 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 have to like adapt to the writing style. Yeah. And you also have to have an understanding of film technique and everything to make sure that. The storytelling is going the way that you want it to. Um, now, I thought that the film did a lot of things that were really interesting looking. Like, I thought that the the inhabitants of Midian looked really oh awesome. It, it That was a strong suit for that, me. Yeah. The practical effects, the costume design, the character design in general. Yeah. 
And there were so many. The variety was amazing. And that's like one of the most interesting aspects of the film is when you go through and you're just seeing, you know, when the girl, what was her name in it again? Sarah? Um, the the little girl? No, no, no. The um, the love interest, Lori. Lori, Sorry, Lori. Yeah, yeah. When Lori was going through Midian, that and was she's my just, favorite part of the whole movie. Oh my movie. god! Like the adventure of yeah. it, and like what kind of creature am I gonna see around the next corner? Yeah. And there were so many, and they looked so different, and it it was just cool to be like, what did this you know effects crew come up with? Yeah. And that's what was so cool. Well, and, I, and they yeah, they did have help, if I remember. Reading correctly on my research of the movie, um, Ralph McQuarrie, who's a, a very famous concept artist, came in and actually, um, like, there's a, a mural that you see at the opening and closing of the movie, yeah. and he actually painted that mural and oh translated like this mythology that Clive Barker had come up with into a into a really beautiful looking mural. Well, you can tell in this film that there's so much work put into it, so much work and. For that reason, you can understand that this was something that Clive Barker loved. Yeah, it was a labor of love. The Nightbreed was a labor of love. Which is why it was probably so crushing when yeah. they cut 48 friggin' minutes out and were like, yeah, this is what we want. Right. When you know, when you know When it's yours, it's personally yours. Like, he created the original story. He wrote the book. Then he wrote the screenplay. Then he directed it. Like, yeah. that's his baby. Yeah. And then someone comes in and is like, yeah, we're cutting 48 minutes out of this thing. You had to be crushed at that point if you're Barker. And if I remember correctly, too, like a lot of the cuts that they did was, you know, to get it past the ratings board. Right. You know, like yeah. they had to send the trailer back 12 times to the ratings board Stupid to get them. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've had that conversation. If anybody wants to kind of understand how we feel about it, go back and watch, or sorry, not watch, listen to our review of This Film Is Not Yet Rated. Go ahead and watch that movie, too, because it is very it's good. It's really good, yeah. Great but, documentary about the MPAA. But we talked pretty significantly about the ratings board and the MPAA and how it works, and it's interesting. It's we'll BS just put it that way. It is. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to kind of finish up talking about the issues with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was marketed as a straight-up slasher film to people. Yeah. Now, that's a problem because when somebody expects something, comes to a film, doesn't get it, they're going to hate the film. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what happened with the film Cabin in the Woods. You know, we, you know, there's another one. Go back and listen to our review. We did like Cabin in the Woods quite a bit. We really liked it, but I know a lot of people who hated it because they expected it to be a straight horror film, like a slasher type horror film. Right. And it wasn't. It was more interesting, it was more in depth type thing. And that's the marketing didn't tell you that it was going to be different. So people went in expecting it to be straight horror and they walked out and they're like, well, that's not what I expected. That sucks. Yeah. When if they went in being open-minded to, I don't know what this is going to be, they may have really liked it. When, and that's yeah. the issue that played out with Nightbreed, yeah. is people were like, well, that's not a slasher film, what the hell? No, and it wasn't. It was a fantasy movie. It really was. Right. It was a, it was a dark fantasy movie that had a, a slasher serial killer as one of the main characters. And this is why it's important to market things as they actually are, yeah. because when you say it's something... That's the crowd you're going to draw. Those right. are the people who are interested in it who are going to come in. So if you say it's something else, you're going to draw a different crowd. And also you have a whole issue with word of mouth. Word of oh, mouth yeah. is still your biggest advertising yes. method. Yes, so if people, like early screeners go in, they see the movie, 
and they hate it because it's not what they were told it's going to be, they're going to go to their friends and say, don't go see Nightbreed. It was yeah, awful. Know. You know? And also, this film was not shown to critics because they just <laughs> thought it was going to be horrible. Well, no, that's that's actually not why. Um, they didn't... Fox refused to show the it to uh, critics because they said that it's because it's a horror film and the kind of people who watch horror films are going to go see it anyway. No, they don't read reviews. Uh, it is was their idea. So they refused critics to do previews. So there's another aspect of critics are already pissed off about it. So once it actually comes out, they see it, they're going to be harsher on it. Right. You know, they're going to say this sucks anyway. You know, it's they made so many bad choices the studio and it was Fox, by the way, uh, that did this. The other issue is that when the marketing, when it came to the marketing, the head marketing guy didn't watch the movie. Didn't watch the freaking movie. That's a problem. You can't. Oh, okay, I amend that. He watched some of it. He didn't watch Portions the whole film. That's dumb. Yeah. You have to watch it to understand what it is. That guy should have been fired. Yeah. Should have been fired. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure Clive Barker wanted his head. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm pissed off for Clive Barker with this. I'm sure Mr. Barker is is is. I, he's st- quite I'm sure he's well. still super oh, yeah. pissed about it. Oh yeah, I, I've heard that his interviews, like when they ask about Nightbreed, he just yeah tenses up. Tenses up. Like, and oh, like, well, the other thing is the <laughs> he had kind of inquired about the extra footage, and yeah. Fox told him that it was. Oh yeah, gone. it was destroyed. It was it, destroyed. So it's destroyed. Guess what? Then we find out it's not destroyed. Oh yeah, it's sitting right here on a shelf. Do you want it? It was there and accessible yeah. the whole time, and they knew it was there. Yeah, they, they just said because they didn't want it to come out. So now, finally, we're getting the Cabal cut, which I definitely will see because I feel like I owe that to Clyde Barker to see his vision. Um, yeah. But that said, what we watched is an in iteration of what the studio was okay with. Yeah, and you know that's kind of a weird thing to think about, like that... This is the director's cut. So yeah. you would think that Clive Barker had his full stamp of approval on this. But, but there's didn't. But there's yet another cut beyond right. this one. That, so it's misleading. Yeah. It's saying it's a Yeah, exactly. Cut. And again, there's another marketing issue. That I think it would be better to call this the studio's slightly more generous cut. <laughs> Nightbreed <laughs> 2.0. Yeah, basically. So... I don't know. It's it, it, it drives me nuts that studios do this kind of stuff, and it takes me off, man. I mean, if you are if you're cool with working with a creative visionary, mm-hmm. you should allow them to deliver what they want. Yeah, that's the thing. You though, have to trust them. Is that creative? The, the the idea is that creative people and business people will never see eye to eye. And stories like this just help reinforce that because you have someone who's very creative-minded with Mr. Barker, and then you have the executives at Fox saying, no, we need this product, and you gave us another turd that now we have to polish. You know, it it doesn't work out. They need, People need to communicate about what the actual product is going to be. Yeah. Someone had to greenlight this script. Yes. Someone had to sit down with, with Clive Barker and say, yes, 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 yes. And then they see the end product and they go, oh no, this is horrible. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things for me personally watching this film, when it was all said and done, I thought about it and I was like, it plays like it's two films smashed together. It does. It's got the the fantastical, uh, more in-depth monster 
aspect of it, which is deeper, and then it has that slasher aspect, and it feels like it was those two things mashed together, and they don't really go. You know, and, and here's a question that I had for you, um, because you're a little more familiar with this genre of movie, so I was hoping you'd be able to explain this to me. Like, it felt like the, um, Dr. Decker's character, what he wanted to do was track down um, the unnaturals, as they were called. Right. And he wanted to kill them. That's the... Yeah, like, all of the people that he were, was killing, were they actual unnaturals who were living outside of Midian? Or were they naturals who were just his his playthings and his practice murders? I don't know. And that's that's something that maybe should have been fleshed out more yeah. in the film. Maybe it is in the Cabal Cut. We yeah. don't know. Which, by the way, it's called the Cabal Cut because Cabal was the name of the novel. Yeah. So, obviously it has a meaning because in the end of the film, you know, Boone's called Cabal. So he's basically kind of like their new leader yeah. of Midian uh, after Lylesburg dies. You know, and it's kind of sad because when you look at, um, at Boone as an unnatural, as one of the people who are inhabiting Midian, he's kind of boring looking compared to everybody else. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's just got, like, those kind of, like, scarifications that pop up on yeah, his face and like, some teeth. And I don't know. It's like That's it. And, a, and apparently a thirst for blood. Yeah. My favorite of all of the creatures was the woman with all the quills on her. Oh, yeah. So cool. And when yeah. she jumps into action when they're fighting. And apparently they're poisoned, too. Yeah, she, like, flings the quills and the noise that it makes, like, like the rattling of all yeah. the quills. And then she throws them, and, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. It looked great. It did. The the, the makeup design on that was fantastic. Oh, so, so damn good. You know, and then, um, you know, how she was, like, luring the cops and then they'd follow her, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is pretty interesting. And then she kills them. It's like, you idiots, you're there to kill them. What do you think she's going to do? Yeah. She's... Which is another thing is it paint the film painted cops as, like, oh my gosh. disgusting, maniacal, and not just violent cops. people. Not just cops, but Canadian cops. I can't believe it. Those damn Mounties. I know. <laughs> Small town Mounties. Yeah. You know, but that that is something that really kind of bothered me about the film. Um was that it felt like this small town podunk police chief was just this absolute despot who was who was running ramrod over what was yeah. it Calgary's or Vancouver's I can't remember I think it was Calgary Calgary um, they was running over like the the police officer from the high from the the larger town um, and he also had this incredibly well stocked. Uh, magazine yeah. full of like paramilitary weaponry. Yes, yes. Why did a small podunk town need a full-fledged SWAT force? Yeah, I know. And that's the thing is, it, it's like this evil army. Yeah. Which is crazy, but then also, like you're saying, they have all these cra all these crazy military weapons. And what's even crazier is when they're going to fight Midian, they they're giving them to like farmers. Yeah. Like just like. People in the community, it's just like, hey, you want a bazooka? Yeah. They just, like, hand it to anyone. It's like, not even asking, hey, do you know how to use these or anything? It's just like, hey, you're a person who lives in the town. We're going to fight these ba these who we think are bad guys. Why don't you have this high-powered weapon? I don't know if you could use it or not, but you follow me. Just follow me and just point it at something that, <laughs> that looks not like you and shoot it. 
Yeah. You know, so and, that was a little over the top and crazy for me. Well, I thought it. I thought the movie. I thought the script had a few good jokes in it. One of the mm-hmm. jokes that I thought was pretty good was when they had this small light pump action shotgun, and um, the this one cop who seems to be in charge of the weapons and seems to be a bit of a of a weapons fanatic. Like he holds it out to Doctor Decker, and he goes, "This is a perfect gift for the lady or for the junior." You know, like, or for the small child. And he's like, that's great. You know, it's like, it's like, what do you want? Do you want this gift wrapped from our magazine? It's just like, another, another great joke came when, when, um, Decker, not Decker, when Boone was being brought into the, the family and, um, they're there and, and the blood of Baphomet is there and there's this guy who had recently been initiated and he's not in on everything yet and he wants to smoke a cigarette and he reaches up at a really important critical part of the ritual and just strikes, strikes a match, match on the wall and then everybody turns and looks at him and he's like ooh sorry you know and that was actually a really good comedic moment in the film yeah and he did a really good job yeah. I thought I don't know if I wrote his name down anywhere I don't I, think I did but his his acting was really good he was my favorite in the film, other than like Cronenberg. I think Cronenberg really brought a lot to his character, even though yeah. the role of his character was a little confused in the film. Yeah, um, I think Cronenberg did a really good job and and brought what he was supposed to to yeah. it. Kind he, of, he was very like like an unstated sinisterness. To yeah, the film. very sinister. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Which is one of the things I really liked about the beginning is that his character gets to killing, like, immediately. Oh, yeah. Which is really nice because that kind of, like, draws you in and you're like, hold on a second, the stakes are high here. There's someone killing. Yeah. Well, and I think, I I really think that, I, I'm of two minds of, about the beginning of the film because it opens pretty explosively where where Boone is having this dream of all of the, all of the monsters that he's going to meet in Midian. But then it, the dream ends and... And he's just kind of there with with his girlfriend Lori. It doesn't seem to move very well after that point. You know, it, it, it's like there's this exciting opening, and then it, it's just this drop. Yeah. And she's like, "Well, you should go see the doctor and everything." And um, so then he goes to see the doctor, and then there's the the serial killings, and so it's like a very unmatched opening to the film and you don't I wish that there would have been a time where you got to see more of Boone in his regular life yeah get to understand the character more before you just throw him into this craziness that's true true. I can see that um you had talked before about the all the the paintings on the wall that were done I thought that was a really good way to open oh I love that opening credits yeah because it it gives the viewer the idea that there's this ancient history there and then that's going to be important later. It's yeah. going to come into play. And so you're kind of like, oh, interesting. But um, other than that, I, what you're talking about with Boone, um, yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't all that well fleshed out before you start jumping into things with him. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, was part of his issue and like him going crazy and stuff because of lack of sex? Because he has that like crazy sex nightmare yeah. where it's like, there's a fire around him, and he's seeing him and Lori like getting it on, yeah. and he's just. But he doesn't look like he's enjoying it. It looks like he's like a little conflicted, yeah. like wants to enjoy it, but he's repulsed by it at the same time. Which could be like a showing of like maybe he's sexually confused. Yeah. Well, and then there's the the time when him and Lori are making out again, and it looks like they're getting ready to to engage in coitus, and um, and 
the LSD that the doctor has been giving him on the sly <laughs> kicks in, and it's the it's like one of the most bizarre romantic sex scenes I've ever seen on a film. Yeah, it's it weird. It's just bizarre. Yeah, but he, you know, Aaron had all this pent up sexual frustration. That's definitely a thing that I think. I think one of, one of the um, the critics who appreciated the film, if I remember correctly, described it as the first successful gay horror story, where yeah. where the, um, the 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 relationship was a frustrated relationship between Boone and um, and the Doctor. Oh, um, uh, okay. Which I thought was a, an interesting take on the story, and one I didn't really see. Well. Here's the thing, though. There, there's a big um, philosophy about slasher films is that the reason there, there's pretty much always knives used is because it's about it's the act of penetration. Yeah. Um, so in this, you know, you see, you know, Doctor Decker as always killing with a knife, and it's a very long, slender knife. It's too. like a razor blade almost. It's it, it's definitely one that penetrates deeply. Yeah. So. He's trying to kill, you know, Boone in it. So, you know, from from that perspective of typically what slashers are. Right, but he's also, not only is he trying to kill Boone in the later part of the movie, but he's also using Boone as his scapegoat. Yeah. You know, he's putting, um, he's using, he's victimizing Boone, saying that, telling Boone that he must be this killer and, you know, giving him drugs to confuse his mind and everything like that. And then when, when, they finally track him to Midian, the police do, he yells at the police, oh, he's got a gun, and then he uses it to kill him. So, I don't know. I mean, it's just the relationship between Boone and and um, the Doctor are, is, is so confused yeah. um, that it's hard to tease that that relationship being like a, like a, a tangled romantic desire. It's hard to tease that out of the film that I, I saw. I can agree with you on that, but I do think that there were a lot of male, you know, male um, relationships that had a lot of sexual tension to them. There was, especially, yeah. Especially yeah. with those living in Midian. Yeah, like, um, I was thinking of the, the pale guy with the, the snakes in his stomach. Yeah, and, uh, and um, the, the blue the, demon the blue looking demon, guy. Yeah. They're obviously both male type characters, yeah. and... There were there was some unspoken relationship there in the film that was going on. They seemed very, very close. There was a lot of sexual tension there. Yeah. Also, um, the first two uh, Midian Midianites, I'll just call them Midianites, that you see when when they're threatening Boone. Uh huh. I mean, those guys seem to have a lot of sexual tension. They right did. Um, but then again, it makes sense that if we're going to be talking about. The, the Midianites as the outsider of the community, you know, the ones who are being persecuted and, and being looked on poorly, then it makes sense to identify With that. The gay community. Yeah. Yeah, because it's 1990. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously the book was written before that, so in the late 80s, which is a time of great um, scare and or fear and, and you know, a. Uh, uh, well, if you're gay, you know, you were greatly ostracized yeah. Oh, yeah. at that point in time. So. Well, and also that was right around the same time as the HIV yeah. epidemic. Which and of was course, of course, a lot of people were saying it's only the gay community and yeah. they started it all in this thing, which is obviously not true. Well, like one of the guys who spread it a lot would have unprotected sex and then tell his partners, yeah, I gave you gay cancer. 
you know. So there was this really bizarre s- stuff that surrounded HIV at that time too. Yeah. Um, but in the film, one of the things to me that was the most indicative of the the the, ostr- uh, the being ostracized and being gay was. Um, there was the one character, the one who exploded because they pulled him out in the sunlight. You remember him? Oh yeah, the guy who had the tattoos. Yes, the tattoos. Yeah, and the and the boxer dog. Yeah, um, cute dog by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he did not look like anyone in Midian. No, he didn't. And I think that he was supposed to represent the gay community because he just looked like a guy. Yeah. You know, like there was there was no different. He didn't have like extra eyes. He didn't have you know, our extra arms coming out of his stomach. He didn't have pointy teeth. Like, he just looked like a person. Yeah. But obviously, when he went out in the sun, he exploded. So he was a Midianite. Yeah. But I think that he was supposed to be um, the representation of the homosexual community. Well, and he was one of the Midianites that you saw the most. And he seemed to be, like, one of the most sympathetic characters. He was the nicest. He was obviously very gentle, very well-intentioned. Outside of the mother and daughter, yes. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. True. True. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, speaking of which, the special effects for the daughter when she was in the sun was fantastic. Like made yeah. her look oh, like yeah, a, yeah. like a, 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 an elongated cat almost. Yeah. Which I want to come back to that, but finishing yeah. up uh, the thing about about that one Midianite, I think it's it's for, to further talk about the representation of the gay community when he's pulled out into the sunlight, it's by the police, mm-hmm. and so that. And he explodes. That is a showing of, you know, the police are directly connected to government. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's kind of showing, like, the punishing nature that the government's taking on the gay community when they forcibly take this person who is a good person and drag him out in the sunlight to have him killed. You know, I think that was probably a um, a metaphor. It could have been. And... Um, it's it's something that you look at and, and you see where they can make that comparison. Um, it's just, it, it was hard to watch that particular scene because, like you said, the police are handed in such a brutal way that, yeah. you know, anything that these other characters are going to do, these Midianites are going to do, then they're going to be punished for it. Right. You know, and so to see someone who was nice and legitimately cared about people around him to be treated in such a horrible way was you know really tough you know especially in our in our post 2014 mind frame where there's been a lot of political turmoil around police brutality yeah. in the past 2 3 years it's something that that i think it, the film speaks to a deeper level even today uh, I think I actually wrote something down about that. Um, oh yeah, uh, I had written that it's very topical for today because yeah. it shows the issue of you know mi- highly militarized police using excessive force. Yeah. So it's ex- basically exactly what you're talking about. So, yeah. But going back to the thing you were saying about the um, the practical effects with the the girl when she was out in the sun she turned into like the little like emaciated cat yeah. thing. I thought it was so well handled because it looked real uh, which was great and it was also kind of slimy yeah. uh, and it was this perfect construction of looking 
disgusting and scary, but yet but so childlike. cute and childlike. Yeah. yeah, it was such a fine line that the construction of that character walked, and it was like perfectly done, in my opinion. And that's the thing; like the practical effects in this were crazy they good. Were very good. Uh, and for 1990, think about that. For 1990, I feel like it was phenomenal. Isn't this the same time that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was being released? Maybe. Let me look back. Because I keep a note. I have a notebook with me that I use for my notes. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because it was like 1989 to 1992. Somewhere right in that time frame. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 1990. Exact yeah. same year. Yeah. And again, that was another year, another thing that we had positive to say about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was that the practical effects yeah. looked really good. But I would say that the practical right. effects in Nightbreed are better. Better. Pro- yeah, most likely because they had to be more creative. I mean, yeah. the only thing that they had to do for the turtles were four turtles. You know, and and for for Nightbreed, they had to create hundreds yeah. of different costumes and different puppets and, you know, paint people different colors and everything like that. It was yeah. really effective. I love the... Um, just going back to practical effects, I love the one guy who was dressed like Boone in the blue jeans and the white t-shirt, and Laurie was following him through thinking it was Boone, and he turns around and his face is like... He like looks like, like a leopard a, like person. a leopard of. fish, almost. Yeah, 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 it was real interesting. It was a, a crazy design. Yeah. Um, there was there was a part that I really liked, I thought was pretty funny, clever, um, where Boone was there initially, and he's kind of like afraid of you know being in Midian mm-hmm. and he is running away yeah. after he meets Lausberg and Lausberg's yelling after him and he yells boy and the way it sounded was exactly like the way Angus Scrim delivers the same line in the Phantasm films mm-hmm. so I thought maybe that was a reference to the Phantasm films uh, which I'm hoping it is in my mind I'm going to say it is because yeah. that's so cool um, not done by the same people, obviously, but that was uh, Don Coscarelli, but um, that's another fun series of films. You know, uh, something I noticed, and I was wondering about this, um, was that um, I, w- I was wondering if uh, the doctor's name was like a send-up to a Philip K. Dick, because, you know, his his first name is Philip, his middle initial is K, and then the name Decker is the name mm-hmm. from... His most famous creation, which is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which became Blade Runner. Right. So I, I sometimes I was wondering when I was watching it, is this like some kind of reference to Philip K. Dick, especially because he was using uh, LSD, and Philip K. Dick had a very strong relationship with hallucinogenic drugs. You so, might be on something. So I I, I thought that was an interesting thing. That, I do not know. Um. You know, we were talking about kind of like the the parallels between the gay community and, and the way the Midianites were treated in this. But um, just taking that even out, if you just look at the film, it's basically a look at how, how people... How treated. Well, people, anyone who's different, yeah. you know, be being treated as social pariahs just because they're different. Yeah. You know, just because somebody doesn't understand them because... You don't actually know who they are. You just base it on a few of their actions or what actions are pinned on them, yeah. obviously, because Decker basically pins the killings on the Midianites. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it's all based on that, which 
the one of the really interesting things, and I had written this down when I was watching it, is by people believing that Midian was an actual problem mm-hmm. and then acting on that fear and that speculation of it being an issue, mm-hmm. they made it an issue. Yeah. It, it wasn't to begin with. They were just going to live there and be peaceful and keep to themselves because they didn't leave. No, they like stayed, they would not leave. If they did, if they did come to the surface, they stayed right in the cemetery. Exactly, which makes me wonder if they had, if many of them had the ability to leave. Even I mean, some of them maybe at night. Yeah. But um, some of them obviously can't yeah. in, during the day. But yeah. I mean, it's it was just interesting to me because it's the whole idea of like people's perceptions. Like if you fear that something is something you fear, then you run the risk of making that into it when it wouldn't have been otherwise. It's something of a reductionist feedback loop. You know, yeah. what you what you take something that you don't understand and you boil it down to the most horrific thing that you can think of and then you project that onto the people, what you're only going to see is what you put there. You know, so it doesn't matter what that person actually is or what that person actually is doing, if you just look at them from a reductionist standpoint of saying, well, this entire group of people, we don't understand them, so we're going to have to get rid of them, be it by forcing them out of where they're living or by actually massacring them, which is something that still happens all over the world, unfortunately. You know, and um, it's just... a A lot of the differences that we put between ourselves are as people are artificial right and they are usually superficial yeah superficial to to an extreme degree and what we want to do is we want to say that we are the winners and they are the losers you know and and that is something that that i have been really fixated on recently is the idea of the winner and the loser you know why does it have to be that our society has to have a winner well because everything's black and white yeah, well, is it? Well, that's how people think. Yeah. Is the point is, if you're not the winner, then you're the loser. If, you know, it's not, if something's not purely good, then it's bad. Yeah. You know, like, people don't deal in gray area, which pretty much everything is gray area, and everything has to do with individualized perspective, and that's the issue. And then when you get people in group think, things are oversimplified. And so... One of the things that's interesting about this movie is that it takes the 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 other the the thing that reductionistly from a reductionist standpoint should be the evil things the monsters because nobody identifies with the monster right, right. and then they make those those characters to be the sympathetic characters it turns the movie on its head in a lot of right. ways and that's why it is kind of a revolutionary type film because Think about this. You know, when Boone first ends up in the cemetery of Midian, he's he has a confrontation with two of the Midianites. Yeah, and he treats them very much like the cops do later on. Right. And the, well, and the thing is, when you see them as an audience member, you're programmed in your brain to think monsters bad. Right. And they do act kind of aggressive toward him, but at the same time, you have to think he's, he's invading their territory. Yeah, he's invading their territory. They they do not see people like that coming in there right. unless it's for a bad reason. So you need to consider the context. Yeah. So then you find out as the film goes on, oh, they're not terrible. They're just trying to live their lives. So your perception changes 
based on the amount of information that you get. And in fact, that the the monsters save his life because the one who bites him actually gives him immortality. Yes, exactly. you know, so he's able to to survive basically a firing squad. Yeah, that is yep yep. Um, by the way, one of the things in this oh oh, one thing real quick, the I looked up the definition of cabal. Because I was like, it's a it's a group of secret individuals. Yeah, it's a secret political clique or faction, basically. Yeah. So, but it sounds cool. Yeah, no, but it, it has significance because that's what Midian was. You know, yeah. it was a secret group. Oh, and let's let's talk about Baphomet or Baphomet as they were referring to him there. That was interesting. That basically he was a living statue. Yeah. You know, it's like, connected. It looked like it was connected to the to the the sit the underground city of yeah. Midian. So maybe the the energy and and the structure of Midian was directly connected. Connected. To it. Well, it was weird because you know, it, it was like they treated Baphomet like a god in certain regards, but it seemed like he was almost a, another part of the uh, like another citizen of the town. Yeah. You know, and the way that you know they're they're like looking at him as as a god, but then. Um, when he renames Boone as Cabal, he's like, I need you to take care of me. You know, it's more of an issue that he needs to be moved and put somewhere else where they can thrive and grow and yeah. and everything like that. So, Well, obviously, they, they got to go somewhere else. Because, well, yeah, I mean, Midian is no longer safe yeah, for them. that's terrible. So it, it brings us towards the end when, you know, Lori wants to be with Boone long term. Yeah. And th- it's interesting because he's kind of like, no... He's like, I love you, but no. Well, I mean, here's the thing: is like, if you if you love someone, do you really want them to take on something that other people will stigmatize them? Right, for? exactly, and that that is kind of what comes into play. But at the same time, it kind of feels like there's this awkward kind of like, well, I mean, uh, you're good, you but know, you're yeah. not. You know, you're not exactly who I expected to settle down with. Yes, it it has that kind of aspect to it, which I don't know if it's just kind of if it was written that way or if that's just the way the scene kind of just came out. It could have been editing. Yeah, could have been. But one thing that I did not like about that is her death scene was so quick. Yeah. Like dumb quick. Like and I, I stab myself and then I die. It was friggin' corny too. Yeah. Like it made it stupid and corny, and I was kind of like, oh man. You're really going to, like, end it like that? And she's like, oh, snap, well, I kill myself now. Ooh! Okay, then you have to bring me back. Surprise! Well, and the fact that she got, she, like, she stabbed herself and she was dead, like, within seconds. Yeah. And I'm like, uh... I mean, that can be realistic depending on where you stab somebody. Like, like with the neck or, or with the veins in your, like, right. in your groin. But, like, where you stab yourself in the stomach, that's a long, slow, brutal death right yeah. there. But, I know, but... The thing is, like, what a selfish thing to do. It really was. Like, she she was being an a-hole by doing that, in my opinion, because here he is, like, he's like, I, you know, I like you and everything, and I know you really like me, but I don't want this for you, and this is tough, and, you know, I gotta deal with this myself. Yeah. Like, she should respect, if she really loves him, she should respect his wishes, and, you know, it's it, it would be hard. I, I have to assume that it's gonna be hard for him long-term, to live with the fact that she is that way because he bit her, you know? Right. And, and she may draw, you know, ridicule, or she may draw violence to herself because of the way she ends up being. I mean, the thing about it is, 
he might feel resentment towards her because she forced him into it. That too. You know, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people who go through the life. Um, I don't I don't want to say anybody. I, I don't know anybody in particular like this, but you always hear the story of the girl who gets pregnant deli- deliberately because they want the guy to marry them. Right. You know, and, this is kind of like that. And this is kind of like that, yeah, except, except, well, there's there's actual penetration involved. So, yeah. You know? There you go. She's like, if you're not going to penetrate me, I'm going to penetrate myself with a knife. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So she basically. Well, I guess that could tie into the beginning. Yeah. And she's like, if we're not having sex, then I'm going to do this on my own and force you to get involved. Yeah. Let's go somewhere quiet where we can be alone. You mean like we're alone Maybe. right now in this room? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things, too, a big thing for this is you can see where the money was spent. Like, I feel like there are movies where you find out they have this massive budget and you were like, well, where did they flush where's that? Where's the money? Yeah. Um, in this, you see where all the money is. Practical effects. Which, by the way, I feel like they could have cut the price down a little bit because they didn't need as many explosions. I would actually argue they didn't need any explosions whatsoever because why is an underground city exploding? exploding. And also, again, why is, that, why is uh, a police force in the middle of... Northwestern Canada using all that firepower. <laughs> yeah, that too. So they yeah. could they could have saved some money there. Yeah, they, they could have. Really and based on the numbers of what happened in the box office, they should have. Because it wouldn't have. I don't think it would have impacted the I think, numbers. Yeah, I think it probably was about two million dollars worth of explosions. There you go. Okay, so bring them down to nine million, and then they only were missing out on about a hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Exactly. Makes it a lot easier. It does. There you go, Fox. Make smarter decisions in the future, you idiots. Well, you know, Fox and their decision-making ability when it comes to films. Yeah. Um, So, we talked about the one character who had, like, cut part of his face off. Yeah. Well, his face was there, but everything else was gone. Everything else was gone. That scene when he starts cutting himself, pretty well put together. Yeah. It it was good. Practical effects. It looked really awesome. And it was... I mean, hard to watch, I'm sure, for a lot of people. I petted the kitty for a little bit. <laughs> you were like, you could turn your head and you're it's like, like, okay. Mm-hmm. And that that, was, that wasn't a euphemism. I actually had a kitten with me yeah, for this movie. an actual cat. So. Yeah, but it's, um, I don't know, I feel like his acting was phenomenal. Uh, there was... I love the car that he was driving at the end of the movie that would, had, like, the blacked out windows. Yeah, 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 that was cool. Which, it was a lot of fun because it reminded me of Spike and Buffy the Vampire Slayer because Spike had a car with a similar setup so he yeah. could drive around in the daytime. It did feel to me like there was a lot of wasted time yeah. in this film. Like, a lot of wasted time. It was like, like, when they're, like, why did we need to see, like, all the cuts of the priest just sitting in jail, like, scratching holes in his hands and stuff like that? Yeah, it just kind of seems like they, they cut... They cut a lot of time out of the film, but they didn't cut, they cut the stuff they should have cut. cut. Yeah, like, what, what the hell? Do we really need a police press conference? No. No. <laughs> you don't need that. You didn't need nearly as much of the fighting. You didn't need any of the explosions. No. I mean, there's a lot of like stuff with Decker, too, that you didn't need that was just exposition. And, and Well, and then there were scenes where he was just kind of stalking around his office. Yeah. Like, and there was that one scene where there was like the bubble lights behind him. Yeah. That looked pretty cool, but it wasn't needed. Yeah, like, what significance of that? None. No. And that's the thing, like, when you're running long, 
like look for the stupid things that are that are yeah. there, you know. Well, and, but that's the thing. Like when Fox is like, "We gotta cut this down," like <laughs> you do, you don't immediately look at the exceedingly long mm, fight yeah. scene and say, "We can cut a little bit of this out." Well, no, because people get excited by fight scenes. Don't you know that, Carlin? But it's a slasher. But therein it, lies. But it has a fight scene. Therein lies the issue with their own work. Yeah. Is that they're like, yeah, it's a straight up slasher, and they don't cut out a bunch of this fight scene. The, the non. That's no. That's non slasher. Yeah. I mean, whatever. It, it's pretty pointless for me to just keep railing on that. We know studios are stupid. They're evil. They make terrible decisions. Unless, unless they're. More, unless, unless we enjoy the movies. Right. Exactly. And then they're cool. <laughs> No, I mean they—they they, in general studios make it significantly more difficult, especially for, for genre films like this. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, and the other thing is, kind of how Fox treated uh, this film is how a lot of studios treat horror films. It's like it's supposed to be quick, cheap. Well, they don't know how to do one effectively. Yeah. Either they just go for the cheap thrills. Well, and the other thing is they want the formula. Like, yeah. a lot of them do. They just want that formula. And that's why, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that The Cabin in the Woods got made. Yeah. Period. Because it was so different. Well, remember, it sat on the shelf for three or four years, though, before they released yeah. it. Yep. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and take care of our, our ratings for this particular gem of a film. Would you like to go first? Yeah, or? I'll go ahead and go first. Um, like, I, like we were talking about, the practical effects were really good in the film. Um, and the best part of the film for me was the time they actually were in Midian, just like going through with Lori. Um, I, I had a hard time liking a lot of the characters. Um, Lori in particular was a viewpoint character. She was supposed to be someone you identified with, but she didn't make a lot of great choices and it seemed like she just stood around a lot of the film. So it was kind of hard to really identify with her and, and be interested in her arc. Um, I, we talked about explosions that didn't need to happen, but did happen. Um, yeah. the score, it was an Elfman score. It was a Danny Elfman score, but I felt like it was a little overwrought for what they were trying to I do. I can see that. Um, overall, I mean, I, I wanted to like this film better than I did, yeah. but I really feel like it's only a two star film. Okay. I feel you. Um, so for me, uh, like I said, it's too long. They didn't cut out yeah. the stuff that should have been cut out. It feels too long. There isn't enough actual story to fill out that runtime. Yeah. Um, and it's the story's not interesting enough, and it feels like two separate things smashed together that would work really well on their own. Like the slasher aspect had a, a lot of very intriguing, cool things to it, so maybe that should have been its own thing. And then the monster aspect had a, real, a lot of interesting things. I think that those two stories could be set in the same world. Yeah. But maybe not necessarily. Where they have a little crossover, but they need to be their own films. Right. Um, the Like you said, the, the practical effects were ridiculously amazing. They executed it so well. The characters looked really cool. The, you know, just the set looked really nice. Like you said, all the time spent in Midian was, like, really interesting. And it was just, like, this really cool adventure just going around each corner to see what was there and how these these um, creatures were living, I felt like the film had a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the a lot of the directorial choices were good. You know, yeah. the acting was good. There were some... You know, Cronenberg, I thought, was great in his role. The guy with his 
part of his cutoff head was did a really cool, fun job being kind of a crazy type guy. Yeah. Um, everything was competent other than that as far as, you know, acting goes. But um, overall, I mean, I felt so conflicted, and like you, I wanted to li- I wanted to like it a lot more than I did, and I gave it, I can give it two and a half. You know, I could, I'm halfway on it. Could I watch it again? Yeah, I could, I could watch it again. There's enough interesting stuff there to do that. Especially if there was a cut that added some more story and it right, made it more exactly. interesting. So I want to check out the Cabal cut. Yeah. But for the podcast, that's an overall of two and a quarter. Two and a quarter. Stars. Not, not, not terrible. But not amazing, but... Definitely um, room for improvement. I had much higher hopes before watching this film, and I was kind of let down by the end. So Sorry. kind of sucks, but I like to think that it's not Clyde Barker's fault, that it's no. Fox's fault. So, But we'll see when I when I check out the Cabal Cut eventually. So, All right, well, thanks so much for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night. Uh, if you want to reach us on Twitter, both of us are on Twitter. Uh, we I'm at JD Dennis. And I'm at Brutal Battle, and that's spelled B-R-E-W-T-A-L, Battle. Battle. Just like a fight. Just like, yep. Just like the Battle of Midian. All right. <laughs> so if you have any suggestions or any any ideas, anything like that, please give us uh, a shout-out on Twitter or our Facebook group or Facebook. send us an email. You can listen to our credits to hear the address. And uh, we'll, we hope to hear from you soon. And give us movie suggestions. We're always looking for them. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production.